the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and we are at episode 600. Nice milestone. Thank you so much for listening. Today, we are going to talk about a great de-churching, some fascinating research, uh, sitting down with Jim Davis, and episode 600, man, that's pretty cool. Today's episode is brought to you by the Art of Generosity course, my new course that is going to help you build a generous congregation. Check it out at theartofgenerositycourse.com and 10 by 10. Do you know that they are on a mission to connect Gen Z to a church community that really wants to see them grow in faith? Go check out 1010.org, that's 1010.org, to learn more. Well, hey, as we celebrate episode 600, I want to thank all of you who have left ratings and reviews, who have helped us reach well beyond 30 million downloads, who continue to share this with your friends, and shout out to Justin Wester. He left a review recently and he said, Carrie, I've listened for a while, never left a review. As a podcaster myself, congrats on that, Justin. I know what a gift reviews can be. Keep up the great work. These interviews and the content you and your team create and bless more people than you know. Justin, thank you so much for your review. I so appreciate it. And we love helping you guys. I want to take you backstage to some of the most important conversations we can have in church leadership. We bring sometimes the best of the business world to the church world, the best of the church world to the business world, but we really are focused on reversing the decline in the church and helping you really identify and break your next growth barrier. That's what this podcast is about. Jim Davis is going to help us with that today. Uh, We are going to talk about the great de-churching, the fastest and largest church attendance exit in U.S. history, the future of small, medium, and mega churches, and the $24 billion in giving that left the church. Speaking of which, do you wish you could have a financially flourishing congregation? Well, last week, I launched my brand new program called The Art of Building a Generous Congregation, and that will help you build a financially flourishing church. Imagine having margin in your budget and margin also in the lives of the people that you lead. From learning better ways to teach and talk about money, right down to every single email that your church needs to send about money and generosity each year, pre-written for you, ready to copy and paste, you're going to learn how to create a culture of generosity from the ground up or from right wherever you are. If you join before the end of the day, this is time sensitive, September 29th, 2023. That would be tomorrow for those of you, the many of you listening today on release day. We are going to run a live work through of the course with me and other leaders in the program. So you can join today at theartofgenerositycourse.com or click the link in the description of this episode wherever you're listening. And of course, This goes way beyond it, but if you get in by September 29th, hey, good things are coming your way. Also, we're facing a crisis. We talk about this all the time on this podcast, and it's a crisis in the faith of the next generation. More than 1 million young people annually stray from the life that Jesus offers them, and if this trend continues, then by the year 2034, the church will lose more than 10 million young people. So 10 by 10, is on a mission to reconnect Gen Z to a church community and to help them grow in their faith the way Christ intended. 10 by 10 is a national initiative that has risen to the charge as the church faces a tipping point regarding the faith of Gen Z. I am involved with this work and love what they're doing, and I want you to go check it out. 
They're having an official launch for 10 by 10 on October 10th. You can go to 1010.org, that's 1010.org, to learn more about the mission and how you can be part of the solution. Well, Jim Davis is with us today. He is the teaching pastor at Orlando Grace Church, which is an Acts 29 church, the host of the As in Heaven podcast. With his co-author, Michael Graham, he wrote The Great Dechurching, Who's Leaving, Why Are They Going, and What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? And this is what we're talking about on the podcast today. It is fascinating. There is fantastic research. They did some great research with Ryan Burge. We're going to dive into it. So sharpen your pencils, get your notebooks ready. Remember, we do have transcripts for this. I know some of you are going to want to go back. So let's dive in to my conversation with Jim Davis. Jim, it's good to have you on the podcast. Good to be here, man. Thanks. You're welcome. So I want to start here. How bad is the situation in the American church? It's not great. Um, so we, <laughs> okay. we, by, we set out, um, we, we knew anecdotally from living in Orlando that the majority of the people who we interacted with who didn't go to church used to go to church. And, and we, we commissioned uh, social scientist Ryan Burge, Dr. Ryan Burge, Dr. Paul Jupe, to do the most comprehensive study of uh, de-churching ever done in the U.S. because it, this data didn't exist. And I think there's some reasons it didn't exist, but we set out to prove or disprove this thesis. We are currently in the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. And we proved it. We, we, their, their study proved 40 million American adults have left the church and largely in the past 25 to 30 years. And so when we, it's probably helpful to define the church for our study. Uh, this is somebody who used to attend church at least monthly and now attends less than once a year. So to put this in perspective, on a percentage scale, the previous largest shift that we have had was the 25 years post-Civil War. And, mm -hmm. and you know people are either returning to church or going for the very first time, immigrating, whatever. Um, our last 25 years, the shift is 1.25 times greater, just going the opposite direction. In terms of numbers, our shift mm -hmm. is larger than the first Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham Crusades combined just go in the opposite direction. Wow. Yeah, I mean, let that sink in for just a minute. And I, I do really, I th um, you know, I really appreciate the, the research approach. I mean, so much of what we read these days is just anecdote, or I think, or it's theory, or I read a stat, and therefore, here's my book. Ryan Burge has a great substack. I discovered he it does. earlier this year. His substack is like incredible on like this guy just lives in data. Like it's I, amazing. He's amazing. And if he were here right now, he would ask, are you subscribed? Because you well, get even yeah. more if you're subscribed. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I need to subscribe and I need to get him on the show at some point because I he's really have. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, just really, really good material. So just to amplify that a little bit. The de-churching we're seeing now, the reverse shift, the shift away from church is bigger than the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and everybody saved in Billy Graham's crusades combined. That's 40 million adult Americans. And that's in how many years? Largely in the past 25 or 30 years, because the 1990s is when this really started going, and there's some specific reasons as to why. So... Literally the time I got into ministry. This is really good to know. You know, really, it really makes you feel, it's all my fault, <laughs> I guess. I guess, you know, holy cow, that's insane. 
The, you know, the other thing that, that is interesting too, and you mentioned this in the book, I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but um, there's this, this belief, I wanted to call it a myth, but belief that the founding fathers of the United States were, were Christian and that we're a Christian nation. You, you talk about that as well in your research, right? What did it, you discover? Yeah, it, it is. It, 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 I don't think it'd be too harsh to call it a myth. Um, not to say okay. Christian values weren't there. Um, but I, I had to go back to the research. But during the colonial times, I think it was something like 17% of people were churchgoers in, in the I colonies. Know. And, you know, there have been David French and others who have made a a very compelling case that the U.S. Constitution was the watershed document into secularization Mm. in in the West. Because when you compare it with the documents, with the the constitutions of the colonies, like Connecticut clearly talks about Jesus. (laughs) And Mm. it has uses very Christian terms that our Constitution uh, clearly avoided. Now, I'm pro-U.S. Constitution. Uh, yeah, but, I'm, yeah. but but it is it is kind of a myth. I mean, the 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 high water mark uh, for Christianity in the United States was definitely the 20th century. Yeah. So really, what what we're saying, or what the research is showing, is that 83 percent of Americans did not attend church at the time that the United States was founded. And I mean, Jefferson was very famous for the Jeffersonian Bible cutting out the passages, literally, like with an exacto knife, scissors. Passages he didn't like. He would have called himself a deist at best. And a lot of the founding fathers were deists, meaning they believed in some higher power. But it was the height of the Enlightenment. They didn't really, you know, our under what my understanding of a Christian faith would be would not be their understanding of a Christian faith. And America was largely unchurched when, which is interesting you know, I know this is not a historical book, but you read the stories of the Puritans. And I mean, on my wife's side, we've got French Huguenots who came over to America. and ma- You do too, French yeah. Huguenots? Yeah. Really? You even Huff- pronounce it right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But they were Calvinists, right, in France. And they fled persecution in France because it was a Roman Catholic country. They settled in New England. And then uh, they were loyal to the British crown. So they came over in 1783 with the United Empire Loyalists into Upper Canada, which became Ontario. But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because all these myths about the Mayflower and pilgrims and the Puritans and the Protestant work ethic, 83% of America didn't go to church. That's right. Wow. And, and where are we now approximately in that landscape, according to your data? Like what percentage? So your definition again, is that um, you're attending church once a year or less to be de-churched or unchurched, right? Which is yeah. fair, not including weddings, funerals, et cetera. But like, I went to a service of worship once a year or less. What what percentage of people now would fit that category? Yeah, so this is this is where Ryan Burge is just gold. But um, he, he does <laughs> yeah. a lot of research on this. We have, I think it was 2020 for the first time, uh, we dropped below 50% in yep. this country. And so yeah. we've seen, of course, the rise of the nuns, and that's Ryan's book, The Nuns. Um, that is those with no specific religious affiliation. That, and and this is this is interesting because that group only increased, I mean, by like two points, if I remember correctly, from the seventies to the nineties, and then they started increasing by like one or two points a year, starting in the nineteen nineties. Wow. Yeah. And now it's kind of like an exponential. It is, it is curve. because they're having children <laughs> <laughs> who are not going to church. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Gen X kids and boomer kids and even millennial kids are dropping out as well. 
Although there is, you know, there's hope and there's a little pockets of hope. But okay, I want to break this down. Another interesting stat, and again, this is not a major theme in your research or your work, but that really hit me because we have this debate. Every, you know, I hear from people who are against mega churches all the time, right? This is this is fun because I don't mind mega churches; they don't yeah. bother me. I led a moderately large church for Canada, for my country. Uh, I'm friends with a lot of people who lead mega churches. We've had a, a lot of guests on who lead large churches. Uh, but one small stat in your research that caught my eyes, the majority of churches in America are small. However, 70% of people who attend church attend larger churches. In other words, you drive through America all over, it's small church, small church, small church, but they're largely empty or emptying. And 70% of the people who still go to church now go to larger churches. So what's happening there? Well, I think it's good how you started this out. Uh, I, I think the gold standard when you're talking about church sizes is Tim Keller's uh, church size leadership dynamics. And, right. and the point he makes off right at the beginning is we can't moralize a, a size of church. Every, right. They're just different. They're going to do different things. And we need different kinds of churches. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also what wasn't in the book is the median size of churches in America is actually 75. So yeah. that's not the mean. That's a very big difference, the median. Um, and, you know, I, so I would also not vilify uh, mega churches. I think there are strengths and weaknesses with larger churches. But sociologically, actually, it's funny, Ryan and I were talking about this yesterday. I mean, there is a sociological thing where we observe crowds draw crowds. <laughs> you mm. know, people like mm-hmm. shiny things. They have, there's an economy of scale as well that we can get into. Um, the economics drive a lot of it, but the, those churches with more people as they draw more crowds are able to offer more programs, more production, more lights, and uh, and that in turn draws more people. So there, there definitely is a sociological piece to what we observe happening. So let's talk about that. Um, crowds draw crowds and that philosophy. You know, the way I've, I've written about it and the way I think about it is, you know, and this is, this is not church language, Christian language, but just human language. I see it as consolidation. If you look at what happened to the book industry, right? Uh, all these independent bookshops, Barnes and Nobles, Borders comes along, um, and then Amazon comes and cannibalizes that. And now there's the resurgence of the independent bookstore a little bit, which is super encouraging. But the same thing happened with coffee shops. Coffee yeah. got disrupted, right? So it was all these little places selling 10, 25 cent cups of coffee. Then the chain showed up, Dunkin' and uh, Starbucks. And now there's the rise of the, you know, the independent coffee shop again. Um, do you see a similar thing with market consolidation that just the people who are still going to church are going, I'm just going to go to a better church? What they would say, quote, a better church? I do think you're onto something. I really like the coffee shop analogy. Um, this is where I think we're going to see economics play into it, though, too. Because, I, I, you know, Ryan would say the middle-sized churches will be hollowed out in the next you know, 10, 20 years, hmm. because at least in cities, and there may be some rural places and smaller towns, this wouldn't be as as true. But in cities, to have a church, and when I say medium, I'll just say uh, one to 300. Sure. You know, you're, you're going to want to have a full-time pastor who's been trained, maybe with some experience, you need a place to meet. Well, that costs more money than the average group of 100 to 300 can now provide unless you plant in some sort of affluent area. So just based on economies, I I think you're going to see fewer and fewer 
mid-range churches. Um, I think there are actually big implications in church planting. Church planting is something that we want to be a part yeah. of. So I think because of this, and, well, let me also say it, it's go, it seems like it will be harder for church plants to be using certain public facilities that we have enjoyed the cheap rent space from. Yes. Um, uh, for example? Public schools um, would be the first one that comes to mind. Now, we have not experienced that here, but I know that's been, that's been a, a real concern in other parts of the country. So in addition to all that, church planting isn't as easy as it used to be. I mean, in church, church planting in the early 2000s, and you, this is a world you know a lot about, um, there was a lot of success because of Christians leaving their traditional church because there's contemporary music, there's ex- maybe expository preaching that they'd never heard of before. Well, that's not new and different anymore. So in many ways, church planting is returning to the hard work that it always has been of evangelism and discipleship. So you combine those two things together, and I think the church as a whole is going to really have to think about how we support our church plants for longer periods of time. Yeah, so let's drill down on that a little bit. I want to start with the uh, small and mid-sized churches. What is the future for small and mid-sized churches? And it's interesting that that Ryan would point to the mid-sized churches most vulnerable. There was, back in the day when I started out in the 90s, I used to read a lot of Lyle Schaller, and anybody under 50 wouldn't remember who he is, but he had a lot of great things to say. And he said, small churches are like cats. They have nine lives and you can't kill them. And there's a certain level of truth to that. If you can get a part-time pastor, 50 people, just enough money to keep the lights on and the insurance paid up, you know, that's pretty hard to kill. So what what are your thoughts or your co-author's thoughts on the future of the small church and the mid-sized church? I think the small church will be do, will do better than the mid-sized church. Um, you know, while the home church movement isn't doesn't have the the momentum that it used to. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, like you said, it's hard to kill. You can meet almost anywhere. You, there's not a lot of overhead. Um, the downsides are that they tend to be very homogenous, um, yep. and and that that is a downside. And I actually years ago I was talking to. a I got to be careful on how I say this, uh, sure. a, a pastor of a very large church in a downtown area. And uh, there was a new kind of young church plant in the downtown area. It was in the small category at the time. And a lot of college people and young professionals were going and the pastor said, that's oh, great. They will serve them well until they have kids. And then they're going to come here because we have childcare, we have programs, we have camps. They don't. Mm. And was he right? He was right. I don't think that, I don't think that, yeah, actually that particular church is no longer around anymore, the smaller one. But I do think in, they weren't, they weren't trying to stay in the small realm. I mean, they, they grew to a certain capacity and then where in the world are you going to meet if downtown Orlando is what people, you know, oops, I gave my town away. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. You still don't know, no, you nobody will know who I'm talking about, but, okay. um, yeah, if, if you plant in an area that you can't ultimately afford to stay in, that's going to mean that you move into the suburbs. And and if you're moving, you're moving away from you know a good portion of the people who are used to driving. So I, I I think Ryan's winning me over. I think small churches will continue to exist and thrive in uh, in phases. You know that, that mm. they'll um, they'll look different and they'll change, but I think they'll be around forever. I think large churches in the the foreseeable future will also do very well in terms of so roughly 500 or more yeah, that's, in that's attendance. That's the question. Ish. Yeah. I, uh, I think the threshold is somewhere between four and 500 to, yeah. uh, 
to be to be out of that medium realm to be viable to be able to financially afford to do what the church has historically in America tried to do the way that we've Mm -hmm. done things. Yeah, church planting, you know, it's interesting you should mention church planting getting harder. I mean, it wasn't sexy back in the day. Now it is a thing that young leaders want to get into. But I think you're right. That whole market consolidation, right? What you you touched on very briefly, I want to go back to. Like, you know, when I was starting a church, it still was like the majority of churches were stuck in a model from somewhere between the 19th century and the middle of the 20th century. You come along with a band and relevant teaching And yeah, I mean, half of our growth did come from unchurched people. Legit, legit. I'll stand behind that. But yeah, you get a lot of Christians who are like, oh, it's a new kid in town, right? And so you had that. And one of the secrets of a lot of church growth is that it is a lot of people just moving in from other churches. So- um, Who will financially support what we're doing because- Oh, they're tithers. Right. They come in knowing that's what they should do. Yeah. So tell me more about why you think the ground is getting harder for church planters. Well, I don't think we see... Okay, I again, I'm pro-church planting. I think that yeah. the studies show that... Uh, we're actually doing a lot here to try and be a better church planting church. The studies show that a huge number of conversions that happen come from those types of churches. So we need them in our community. Um but it's getting harder because what they're doing isn't noticeably different than what's going on in a lot of other churches in the cities. It's not, it's not novel anymore. Uh, people to, for Christians to join that and be disciple makers and invest their time and their money, they need to have the vision of church planting. And we need to free up that leadership to be doing evangelism and discipleship. And that just means that the church plants, I think, that we support, we need to do so. We need to, from the outset, plan on doing this for a longer period of time than we've been used to. Wow. Okay, so this is really good. I want to dive into some of the data as well. And let's start with the broad category of deconversion. Um, What reasons are people, again, this is not your reasons. You've actually done the research and you've got copious data in this huge study. Uh, What are the reasons for people deconverting? So I would put deconversion and dechurching in different categories. And I think this is a lot of the, the, there's overlap between the two, but I think this is the reason that these kind of studies haven't been done, as is a guess, because we just assumed that everybody who's leaving church, if you're going to read the, what you generally see on the New York Times and social media and other places, that everybody leaving church is kind of the Josh Harris story or somebody who began to struggle with their identity and sexuality and decided they were going to leave the faith altogether. While there are those people, the over 75% of, so we're we're talking about about 30 million of the 40 million, that's not them. And in, in many cases, we've seen that there are certain groups that we've identified they're still Christians. They are they are Orthodox. They are Christians. They have no pain point uh, in terms of their church experience, and they are one hundred percent, in their words, willing to come back to church. Huh. So why did they stop going? So we break we break at, at a very high level this into what we call the casually dechurched and the dechurched casualties. So the teachers casualties, about 10 million people, they have real pain points, uh, abuse, political syncretism. Uh, it, it could be a variety. We identify four or five different reasons. But they, they, they did 
leave the church because of that. Now, whether their faith is intact, we got to get more granular. But so that's a left, quarter. That's 10 out of 40 million. Right. About a quarter people, that's what they did. But then you have the casually dechurched, and largely they didn't leave because they had, were disgruntled. Do you know what the number one reason for dechurching in America was? <laughs> Go ahead. I moved. All right. That's the number one reason. So this is casually. They moved. They got into new rhythms. They didn't connect. They were busy. Uh, of course, COVID was, you know, was got a lot of people out of the habit of going between three and 18 months, depending on what state you lived in. And a lot of people decided they liked their new rhythms. Uh, and as a, as a dad of four kids, eight to 15, I really identify with, with kids getting busy, travel sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, Travel sports, I used to be really harsh on it and be like, just don't, why don't you do it? Well, you know, I use my daughter as an example now who's into volleyball. I have no illusions that she'll do it in college and be professional. But but if she doesn't do that, she gets left out of her friend group because they get to a place where they can play and she can't. So I'm very sympathetic to that. But a lot of families have decided they're they're not, they one day they'll go back to church, but it's just not working right now because- our culture does not protect Sundays, and that's when a lot of the travel sports happens. So a little editorial comment here. You know, I'm a former lead pastor, founding pastor now, which means I don't do anything. And uh, But I'm still part of our church and still behind it. I was at a donor event last night. Like, I'm, we're, we're behind it a thousand percent. My successor, Jeff Brody, doing an incredible mm-hmm. job. But during COVID, uh, we had a pretty tight lockdown here. I was not deemed an essential person, right? So <laughs> unless I was teaching the guy with the microphone, there was no, I had no helpful skills to be there. And at first I'm like, well, what do I do? This is the first time in 30 years. Like I haven't gone to church on a Sunday morning. Well, 50, really, honestly, if I go back to my childhood. Hmm. So I'm like, well, I better watch both live streams. And then I'm like, well, I guess I don't have to go twice. So it was down to one live stream. Then it was a live stream while I was still brushing my teeth. Then it was a live stream on the back deck. (laughs) Then it was a live, and I'm like, holy cow. And you know what? Like when that's over after 45 minutes or an hour, we started with shorter services. I'm like, Mm -hmm. you have the whole day in front of you. And I used to be like you, like condemn travel sports and all that stuff. Or just, you know, I wouldn't condemn it, but I just kind of roll my eyes. It's like, ah, you're not, you're not devoted enough for people who would tell me, because we had a lot of unchurched people, man, that's my only day off in the week where I get to do what I want. And then finally during COVID, I'm like, oh, this is what they were talking about. And this is actually really awesome. Like it is fantastic. Like to get a day where you don't have anything else. And so, you know, we went back when the church opened, but it was like pulling a kid to church for a little while. And now I'm back in the groove and the habits yeah. reestablished and you know all that. But I went through that psychological journey of like, oh, I finally get it. I really understand what's going on now. So the number one was I moved. What were some of the other reasons? Like, do you see that psychology? Because it's not like my faith was dying. My faith was fine. Right. And I love our church. Right. And now I'm there in person every Sunday. I can't remember the last time I watched online. You know, if well, I'm in I town, have, I'm at church. 
I had the same experience because we were when we were only live streaming. I was recording on Thursday, and my family was doing things that we don't get. We like to hunt and fish, and we would be we'd leave town and do what people do on the weekends. And I I would be the first to say this was it's really nice. It is, it <laughs> we, is. and it's, and I get so I, I'm sympathetic. But um, other reasons it so it again the de church profile is not monolithic. That's one of the main things mm-hmm. we want people to take away. So it depends on what kind of de-churched person you are as to why you left. But it, w- w- if we stay in the casually de-churched realm, um, you have the, the, the two groups. Um, well, I don't even, that's not even the easiest way to do it. Some, there's some groups that, that it's all, uh, it's, it's all about convenience. They, they moved. There was a life transition. Um, divorce is a real issue actually that, that, tends to impact the lower class and the lower middle class more. Or if you have a baby outside of uh, marriage, um, that is another thing we, we can come back to. I mean, we really have learned that de-churching is a lower and middle lower class phenomenon. Okay. Um, I want to put a pin in that because yeah. I read some other research that says, I don't know if this is Ryan's or someone else's, but that the most people likely to, the people most likely to attend church are college educated, more affluent people. Well, this is a big deal. I mean, because we have this boogeyman in our culture of higher secular education taking right. our children away. But only three percent of Christians with master's degrees have de-churched. Whoa! Only three percent of 3%. Christians with master's degrees have de-churched. Yes, I guess that's why I went back. I don't know. <laughs> it's what do you make of that? Oh man, I, we Ryan and Mike and I have talked about this. Um, this, if you do have Ryan, this would be a fast. This is his wheelhouse right here. Um, you know, there's he has some ser- some theories on the type of person who goes to college and gets educated and their values of community as being different. Um, there are, you know, there there are some theories because again, this is the why yeah. is is we're we're guessing uh, doing the best we can. But there, there's some people who would say the person who is going to go to college and get his master's degree is is a, a good thinker, not easily mm-hmm. duped. Um, mm-hmm. And as a pastor, I would argue there's a lot of good, true. There's reason behind our faith. We're not just doing something to to believe it. And I, and I, the so, only so reason I, I'm here. I, I do think that there's something to that. But again, I I would uh, I would yield to Ryan because this is he has done so much work on this specifically. No, that's really interesting. Any thoughts, though, that you would have as to why, if you have a lower level of education or family instability, that that would lead to it? Because, yeah, there is that idea that the unintelligent still go to church and the intelligent have unplugged or all become progressive. And that's not actually the case. So what's going on? Well, I think there's an institutional issue. I think U.S. institutions and the church is an institution uh, tend to work less for certain types of people. Um, mm. And and so, I, you know, you go back to the low-income person who uh, has to work long hours or unusual hours uh, that could take them out of Sunday morning Shift or work. maybe yep. m- that kind of work. Um, they don't have the flexibility that you and I have in our schedule. Or if yeah. they get divorced, they then get thrown into that and they weren't used to doing that. They have to 
share custody, which might change their rhythms completely. Or if you have a baby outside of marriage, you don't have the family net to take care of you. I mean, it, it all these life transitions, and again, life transitions, the number one reason, they tend to hit the lower income brackets harder than the middle class, the, the upper middle and upper. You know, that's really, that's really a helpful analysis because it, it sort of triggers the pastoral instinct I think a lot of us have. It's like, oh, you're not mad at us. You're just going through a really difficult time. And, you know, I'm married yeah. to a former divorce attorney and she'll tell you, like, couples' finances get turned upside down when families split up too. So there's sort of that shame. Am I really included? Um, well, $100,000 no on divorce attorneys, you go into debt. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, Crazy. it creates real, real issues. Yeah. Well, let's start breaking down. Oh, oh there's one quote I want to get to before you start breaking down. And this is, uh, I'm going to read this at, at some length. But Jake, I think his name is Midor. Meter. 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 I had breakfast writing. with him this morning. Oh, there you go. So you're talking to Ryan yesterday, having breakfast you're, you're with You're bringing Jake. up all the people I had to talk to in the past 24 hours. <laughs> Bring up all your friends. He wrote in The Atlantic, and he wrote about your book, and he quotes Stanley Hauerwas, someone I studied back at seminary, who said that pastoral care, this is a quote, pastoral care has become obsessed with the personal wounds of people in advanced industrial societies who have discovered that their lives lack meaning. And then Meadows goes on to say, or meter, I should say, goes on to say, the, the difficulty is that many of the wounds and aches pr provoked by our current order aren't of a sort that can be managed or life-hacked away. They are resolved only by changing one's life, by becoming a radically different sort of person belonging to a radically different sort of community. I thought that was really interesting because to me, that was a comment on preaching, some of which I've done, which you know, Keller would say was moral, uh, what did he call? Uh, therapeutic, moralistic, moral, ther moralistic, wait, moralistic therapeutic, therapeutic deism. I think Christian Smith is the one who coined that term, but yeah. Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, which is basically like some kind of God who cares about your little personal wounds and that kind of thing. Comments on whether that has contributed to the problem that we're looking at right now? Yeah, I, I think this can take us to one of two extremes. So on one hand, you you have, I didn't coin this term, I don't know who did, but um, you have churches, Coldplay and a TED Talk. And, right. and you know, and, and so, and there is a lot of, and, and even you see a lot of pop psychology with little to no gospel. Yes. Um, and, and I do think that in, in those churches where what you win them with is what you win them to. And mm. it's just, that's not if the gospel of Jesus Christ is not at the core of what we're doing, if our, if discipleship is not the mission, then putting people in seats is, and we, we call people to give money in that context, but not a lot else, maybe serve on Sunday. But in terms of life change, we call them to too little and we don't give them enough. Um, and I know I'm painting in broad strokes, but we can go to the other extreme too and say, you know, the Bible gives us all we need. We have no need of any mental health professionals in our midst, you know, biblical counseling only. And I'm not trying to get too controversial here, but, uh, but I, I do think there is, there are, I know there are real mental health issues in, in the church and in the D church. Mm -hmm. Actually, we have some, we cite some studies on, on the mental health of the D church and how we can see that it's different than those who regularly worship. But, um, I think churches really need to be focusing on the discipleship and spiritual formation of the whole person. And that includes the emotional and psychological, not just getting them facts. 
So, so there's, there's basically, I'm setting up these two extremes. So as a church, we want to absolutely have the gospel and the teachings of the Bible as the center of what we do while acknowledging that God has given us gifts scientifically that we can help, you know, that we, we can use to minister to our people more fully. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a helpful thought. So if it's not Coldplay in a TED Talk and it's not just ignoring all of the wounds that people have, where do you, where do you land on that, Jim? Oh man, I mean, this is this is what we as pastors are, are trying to. I, I'm I'm growing in it. I, I'm not the teacher. I'm a student in this. But when I look at we walk through books of the Bible and and whatever the main point of the passage is, whether that's two verses or two chapters or a whole book, I want that to be the main point of the sermon. But I want to think about how people feel. What makes them not want to do these things or do these other right. things? Where, you know, the why is behind what we feel. And I often, now in Orlando, we have the blessing of having the highest uh, per capita number of counselors in any city in the world. <laughs> there Congratulations. Are 11 wow. institutions pumping out degrees here. But huh. I, I'm blessed in that. So often I'll contact a counselor and be like, hey, this is where I'm going. What landmines do I need to be aware of? Where can I, uh, where can I hit the heart here? Not as opposed to going to the gospel, but in Tim Keller's, uh, and he, he said something like contextualization is knowing the storylines of your people and showing them that all those storylines find their happiest ending in Jesus. Mm. And I, and I, yeah. I, I'll even plug, uh, one, I, I, one episode that we did on as in heaven with a guy named Ben Kant, who nobody's ever heard of, but everybody should, uh, on mental health in the church. And it was one of the best episodes on our podcast that we've ever had. I thought he just absolutely crushed it. I'll, we'll link to that in the show notes, and thank you for the recommend. I will give that a listen, because I think it's important. I don't think it can be ignored, um, but you know, what you just said in your answer reminded me very much of Keller, and I don't want to deify him, but man, I do so admire him. And he had a way of just disarming people by kind of looking at their presuppositions and taking them very, very seriously, and then saying, but in the end, that's inadequate, and have you considered Jesus? Only he yeah. said it a lot better. The other thing, um, before we dive deep into the data, and the data holds a lot of clues for us, so I, I do want to go there, is you talked about, and we talked about the founding of America, but you argue that the religious right these days is functioning more like the secular right, that what we see around the Supreme Court, politics, and the presidential races is, you argue, a form of secular religion. Can you yeah, explain so, that? Here's another. I, it's a big word. Here's another myth of uh -huh. dechurching. We 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 tend to think it's all happening on the secular left. It began there, right. but the secular right now is dechurching at twice the pace of the secular left. And there's there's a lot of reasons there we can dive in, but that is absolutely what's happening. And so I I, I want to um, I, I look at it like the horse and the cart. There are some good Christians out there, and, and the horse is Jesus, and the cart is politics and and social engagement, and so the, and that's that's good. I don't want to, but but there are some people for whom the horse is politics and cultural engagement, and the mm. the cart is Jesus, and so we find people, and this is of course anecdotally, I can talk to my own context, but. People who, if, if the horse is political engagement and culture wars, 
then they're going to look around a church like ours and not be satisfied because that's not primarily, and honestly, they'll look at most churches in our area and not be satisfied. So they want to find somebody whose who's horse is the culture wars, political engagement. And so they will join these, these movements on the secular right and be getting some church-like fulfillment in it. There is a mission, there is a community, but it's not church. Mm. So I want to be uh, a little bit devil's advocate here and suggest something and just see how you react to it. One of the things in my casual conversations, no research behind it, but just churches I know have discovered that if they get onto the anti-woke agenda and they start parodying the religious right, it's a pretty quick way to grow a church. Have you seen that? A hundred percent. That's absolutely true. They will grow their church. Um, and, and so you have in, this, in the data, you have some people who are still churched and that's what they're doing. And then right. you have others who have just de-churched. So I, I think you're 100% right. I mean, the farther you drift to the left or the right, there's going to be a type of person that you will, you will grow with. But in the horse and the cart analogy, you know, I've read stories like, you know, journalists have gone to visit these churches. And these are places like the Atlantic or the New Yorker that profile churches like this that have seen explosive growth. And I think you're, you're looking at hundreds of churches, not thousands or, you know, tens of thousands of churches that have done this. But the pastors, perhaps sincerely, perhaps cynically, have realized, oh, in this moment, if I say things that sound like I'm a Republican nominee for president, uh, I'm going to grow this church real fast and pack the room out. And those services tend more to be about big P politics and little J Jesus than anything else. What do you think the future of those churches will be? Do you think this is a flash in the pan and five, 10 years from now, we'll see them peter out? What, what is your thought? That is a really good question. Um, I think that if I back up just a little bit, I think fear is, is driving a lot of it. And I, I, I don't want to minimize that because if, if you're, um, you know, if you're in your 60s and 70s and you look at a lot of the changes in culture, um, you know, we and you, you even could go to the New York Times. Duthat was talking about how in COVID we had to have 10 years of conversations in two. And that's and that's really hard. Um, but I think there there is a lot of fear. What kind of culture is my child or grandchildren going to grow up in? Um, and but I have to. I have to imagine that the dust will settle and that that a certain that certain type of person it tends to be a little older their that generation is going to go away it's not monol- I mean I can definitely think of some younger people doing this but it feels to me like the dust will settle in that well and I think you're right you know the I hadn't thought because I've read those articles I've tracked this movement and I'm I'm definitely not in that camp that's not that's not where I am personally but I can imagine that a decade from now, those churches have largely disappeared. That moment has passed, or they become basically political clubs, like they've secularized to, to the way you could argue that there are churches that exist on the left that are basically community organizations with a secular agenda. I could see that happening on the right too. Um, interesting. I could too. That makes it, I mean, I think that's a good articulation of it. Yeah. 
Well, we'll see if that's true or not. But yeah, I think the political church has a very limited shelf life um, because things are changing so, so quickly. So you break down, it's five groups, right? That you really break down and study. It's, it's five detail. groups. We we combine mainline and Roman Catholic dechurching because they are almost identical. Fair enough. So six groups, five categories. Okay. So um, let's start with dechurched mainstream evangelicals. Tell me a little bit about what you're learning with dechurched. So define mainstream evangelicals, because most people think of independent Baptists or, you know, that kind of thing with evangelical. But yeah, so I mean, I'm a Presbyterian, former Presbyterian evangelical. So this is interesting yeah. to me. So let me give two helpful maybe caveats before we yeah. dive in. One, we we didn't develop these profiles by by working, looking at the research ourselves. We didn't put our finger in the air after doing the research. We used machine learning. So this is, this, oh, these AI. are computer yeah. generated algorithms that mine the 7,000 participants over 600 data points and it create it, it starts to lump together common answers, and so that's how these categories came came about. Mm. And the hope was not just to understand, but to equip, so that we can, as we engage the D Church, not look at them all as one monolithic group, but be able to understand. Oh, I know what I'm dealing with here. And the more that I've done that in my own personal ministry, it's been incredibly helpful. So that was the goal. Uh, one group that the machine learning identified, uh, we called the mainstream, uh, dechurched mainstream evangelicals. So these are people who have casually dechurched from an evangelical church. They, their orthodoxy scores are still extremely high. They're actually higher than those who still go to church. So they believe a Nicene Creed Christianity. I think it was 98% of them believe that Jesus is the son of God. 100% of them are willing to go back to church. A hundred percent. They it's it's about two point five million people represented in this group in America. And we actually gave uh, this study early on the executive summary of it to a church in Columbia, Missouri, the crossing. And they, they were like, are you serious? There's this whole group. And so they created an initiative just to engage this low hanging fruit. And in a matter of months, they had hundreds of new people physically worshiping in their church because all this group needs by and large is a nudge or an invitation, maybe come into your home before you go to church. But it has been crazy to me as I have engaged this group and invited them to church. They almost always come and they often stick. Hmm. So what are their reasons? Like life got in the way, they moved, uh, the what happened? I moved, uh, COVID, life transitions, attendance was inconvenient. Uh, those are the types of things. Interestingly enough, when you ask them why they'd come back, sociologists have long had this, the categories of belief, belong, and behave. So right. they, they believe and behave like Christians, uh, but they don't belong in that way. But when you ask them why, what it would take for them to come back, it's all it, it, either in the belonging category. If I'm, you know, uh, there's a good pastor, a friend invites me, all community belonging type stuff, or, and this represents their probably real Christian faith, if God tells me to, you know, and, and God mm. calls me, or if if I miss church, that was a big, if I miss it. Do you have any idea of what their personal disciplines are like? Like, obviously, you know, the surprise there is their belief. And, and again, I'd encourage people to read the book, look at the research. It is Nicene Creed. This is not even the Apostles' Creed. This is the Nicene Creed, which goes into right. more detail, right? So, these are people who are like, yep, yeah, I'm checking the boxes. I believe all this stuff. I'm not, I'm not deconverting. I'm de-churching, which is an important distinction. 
Um, but do you have an idea what their personal rhythms are like? Are they still reading their Bibles? Are they still praying? Are they doing family worship? Or like what's going on in their, their homes? Definitely their- praying and listening to things online and, and probably okay. reading. Family worship wouldn't be as, you wouldn't have, see all of them doing that, but yeah. uh, definitely engaging those things. And, you know, is we, a lot, some of them may actually live stream church every week okay. into their home. So when, okay, this was, I wanted to ask this early on and I forgot, so I'm glad you raised it. So you are, you are talking here, the de-churching about physical church attendance, not necessarily live stream views. Yes. And so this was a big conversation among us. What do we do with people who worship online exclusively? And we called, we decided that they are de-churched. I mean, they are not a part of the body. They are not experiencing the sacraments or ordinances. They're not, they're not engaging in the one another's the way that we are called to do. The, The way that I describe this, I lived in Europe for five years and as a missionary. And we would every now and then get to go onto a U.S. Army base. And it was, it was weird because you may have done this before where you go onto a base and you were on U.S. soil and everything mm. feels different. And you are, I mean, there's American architecture, there's uh, American food establishments, the police and fire sirens make the right sound, you get free refills. Like, this is crazy because we're so <laughs> far from home, but it feels like home. That's what happens in, 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 in worship, in physical worship that, like you were saying, it, it just, it isn't translated, um, through the internet in the same way. Yeah. Okay. So, and I guess if you're doing hybrid worship, you would be caught as churched in your study. So let's say I watch online twice a month and I go twice a month, then I count as being churched. They would count as being churched. And I don't want to, I also want to give a caveat that I'm not anti-technology in the church. I think the question we need to ask ourselves is how are we using that technology not to replace what they were doing, but to move people in the direction of embodied worship? Yeah, and and to supplement what you're doing, and even as the new front door, right? I think right. we're on the same page as yeah. that. And I would agree long term. I think the last stat I saw, I don't know, this was from your book. I think it was Barna, was like nine percent of the general population said they wanted to access church exclusively online. And I would have theological questions like, what's your ecclesiology? What's your community? What is all right. of that? Because well, you know, yeah, and, and strong cases are made that. While the faith of those uh, parents may remain intact, you know, it will, I mean, theologically (laughs) will if they're real Christians, um, the likelihood of the children of the unchurched being de, sorry, the children of the de-churched being unchurched is very high. And so there's a generational impact when a family decides that they're only going to engage online and never be around the church that they were called and baptized into. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very, very fair. And now that we're totally like out of that COVID era too, and this is the first summer at least, and we were in pretty tight lockdown. So I think people in California, people on the coasts would agree, uh, people in, well, Europe wasn't as tight as some states and other places. But I think we'd agree, okay, life's back to normal again now. And, you know, the the barriers to re-entering church physically are are gone at this point. Yeah. Ex-evangelicals. You talk about former evangelicals. They're getting a lot of press these days. What are you learning about ex-evangelicals? So as with deconversion, ex-evangelical is a term that gets used in different ways. So we have to really define it. 
Sure. Uh, for our purposes, this group that machine learning identified, this is a group of people who do have a pain point. They left the church for a reason. Um, it could be corruption or abuse in their their context or the culture abroad. It could be uh, spiritual abuse, could be heavy-handed leadership, political syncretism. They have their reasons that they left. Uh, what's fascinating is that it, it seems like they left with their faith intact. I think 97% of this group would, would still say Jesus is the son of God. Um, while they did very intentionally leave the church, they did not, it doesn't seem, leave the faith. And they would consider, well, okay, uh, one of the reasons we call them ex-evangelical, they are done with white evangelicalism. Okay, if, mm. Right now, where they sit, they are not going to go back to a church like mine. But they are open to different expressions of the church. They would be open to certain mainline churches or um, house churches or maybe even the historic black church. You know, anecdotally, um, I've got a really good friend, Justin Holcomb, who's the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese here. And they're, they're on the more conservative side of the Episcopal faith. And we've seen people who fall in this category. I know people who just can't bring themselves to return to a church like ours, but they're they're thriving in that conservative Episcopal context. So, mm. Okay, and then a lot of them are not thriving in that context, and they're at home, right? Because they're part of your de-churched Well, right study. now, they're, they're not going anywhere. Yeah, this, this, exactly. this group is a 2 Okay, point, so they would engage 5. in something different. Yeah, they, they, they're communicating they would consider something different. And again, this is another 2.5 million people we're talking about. Wow. So, uh, you know, just so in case somebody doesn't understand syncretism, what do you mean when you use the term, because it's come up a couple times, political syncretism? Uh, maybe the shortest way would say when, uh, when a church wholesale commits itself to one political party. Um, and, that, and that is, um, you, know, you see it in the preaching, you see it in the discipleship, you see it in a lot. And that, that happens on the left and the right. You know, I, I am a firm believer that if the, peop, the the church leaders who are faithfully committing themselves to God's word and the gospel, they're going to get it from both sides. Mm-hmm. Because the gospel, mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't align with the political party. There, there are going to be ways that we're going, oh, the Republicans, they do seem to do this better. The Democrats, they seem to be more aligned with the heart of Jesus in this way. And that's going to get pastors in trouble in the polarization that we're experiencing today. But um syncretism is when we just adopt one political side or the other. No, that's fair. And I mean, it's a historic term that talks about when Christianity gets fused with Buddhism or another faith system or, you know, Canaanite religion in the Old Testament, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Theologically speaking, syncretism in the missionary world is when we take aspects of their faith and synchronize them into, sorry, aspects of their culture and synchronize them into the faith that we're introducing. And, you know, it goes beyond contextualization. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair. Okay, good. Uh, Then you also have a section or the AI, the machine learning, uh, develop different trends for black indigenous people of color. So what are you learning about that group? So what's fascinating is we never asked AI to consider race as a factor. Never. That was not a factor that we asked it to look at. There were other factors we asked it to look at. Uh, but it developed this category of people who had de-churched from an evangelical space and that it's 0% white. 
it's mostly African American and Latino. I think it's about eighty five percent African American, maybe eighty eight percent, maybe fifteen percent Latino, and then some other. But um, this group of people. So imagine uh, uh, this group of people. It's another two point five million people, and they are uh, the wealthiest of all the dechurched. Um, evangelicals. So you wow. were talking you about- mean, You mean financially? Well, financially. Their income level is higher than any of these other groups. We're talking two to $300,000 income, master's degree, medical degrees, uh, law degrees. So it, the, the, the stereotypical BIPOC person in this category would be a, an African-American man, went to medical school, is practicing today in Atlanta, and maybe he's around the age of 50 and really hasn't been in church since he left medical school. Wow. Okay. And what are you learning about that group? This group's uh, orthodoxy scores are very low. Um, They, it, 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 this, unlike the other two groups we talked about, their orthodoxy scores are low and they would say they left because they felt uncomfortable in the church. They left because they, they, it wasn't as extreme of a pain point as the evangelical. And what's really interesting is this really, it, it happens at a coming of age. It happens, you know, in the college age years or early working, uh, in this case, because they're so highly educated in the early professional years. And I, this is me guessing, but I can imagine that if you're an African American who grew up in evangelical space, you would, as a minority in a in a, in a largely white church, that makes sense that it w- that would be the age when we would start noticing things we had never noticed before. But for whatever reason, this group it does not seem like the gospel, uh, like they really latched onto the gospel at a young age. Are there any signs that this? And how many people are there in this BIPOC? This is group. another 2.5 million. So the, these first three groups are the same size. Wow. Okay. And are they coming back? Well, they're they're not back. So I mean, no, that's, but that's but that's I mean, why, yeah. you know, the other groups are like, if someone invited me, or if I could find a different expression, what, they would, what would they, they say? They would have some of the same things. They would say, if um, I moved and was lonely, I'd consider it. If I you know wanted community, I'd consider it. Uh, this group actually said. If God, uh, if God told me to go in some significant way. So this is different than I miss church. This doesn't, Mm. this doesn't, this is more of a like, well, God would have to do something big. Like not believing that he will. And I do think that, that they would go, those who do go back would want to go back to churches with, um, that are really practicing ethically what the Bible teaches. Uh, they would want to go back to a church with a lot of empathy and relational wisdom. Mm-hmm. So a little bit different than the church they left. Right. By the sounds of it. You, you, you mentioned the phrase, I miss church. In these uh, to seven and a half million people that we profiled so far, what percentage of people would go, oh, I really miss it? Well, we didn't ask if they really miss it. We asked what what would cause you to come back? And they said, if I miss it. If I miss it. So in other words, yeah, yeah. I'm not missing it yet. I'm having, yeah, and, I'm but, having but a good time the, out here. When we couple that with their orthodoxy, it almost feels to me like they know that's, that is or will happen. Okay. Interesting. 
So, um, you know, one of my theories, and I, I have theories, I don't do research like you do, or I read the research, but I don't do it. But one of my theories is that that underneath this, like, oh, I moved, or uh, yeah, travel sports, or do you know how nice the beach is on a Sunday, or I just wanted to sleep in, that the real enemy there is indifference. And people tend to do things that they see value in. So tonight, I'm having dinner with my grown children and their girlfriends, uh, fiance as well. And like, we, we see a lot of value in that. So we're going to spend some money on dinner. We're going to invest some time in dinner. Last night, I went to another dinner at our church. I saw value in that. You know, I don't just eat dinners, but you know, uh, you see value in a car you're purchasing. You see value in a relationship you're building into. You see value in things. And my subconscious argument has always been, you know, if people are just like, eh, I don't really know. It's that they just don't see the value in it. And therefore, I think our battle is not against the church down the street. It's against indifference. Any thoughts on that? Did that did that resonate at all? Like, it does. What are we fighting? I, I mean, I think that definitely is true. I think largely mm. a category we haven't covered in the cultural Christians, I would, I would apply it a different way. But with the the ex-evangelicals and, and specifically the de-churched, maybe the de-churched mainstream is the best way to describe this. It feels like, so I, I've historically gone to the gym and been mm-hmm. really involved in the gym. Early summer, we went on vacation. Or actually, early summer, I got COVID. Then oh. we went on a three-week vacation. Then the day we were coming back, I broke my toe. And oh. and so like all these things to get me out of the gym. And now I've, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of I'm without excuse. Why haven't I gone back? And I know it has value, and I feel gross, and I I really intend on going back. But my habits are now such that it's going to take a real overhaul of, uh, you know, the way I eat and going to bed early and waking up early, all those things. So that's how I imagine it with those who are really Christians don't have the pain points. Um, yeah. Mm. Okay. Fair. You've got some interesting stats. Uh, this is page ninety ninety one of your book, but reasons for leaving church among eighteen to twenty five year olds, and then twenty six to thirty nine year olds. So basically, that twenty to forty demographic. What were some of the big findings in that, Jim? So with that, so we we later in the book address that age group as a whole. In page mm-hmm. ninety ninety one, we were talking specifically about the BIPOC group yeah. that we've been talking yeah. about. So that that would be different, but. As a whole, this is true of the BIPOC group, especially the the age range of 13 to 30 is overwhelmingly when people are going to leave the church the most. Um, that is when it's hardest to maintain our faith. So, uh, so that was especially true with the BIPOC Christians. They, uh, their discontent with what they were experiencing in the church went from like two percent, you know, early teenage years to. I think it was 12% by the time they were leaving their kids, their parents' homes. So they got hit in that transition uh, harder than other groups of people. But on the whole, the the transition uh, into your teenage years, your adolescence, then your transition into out of your parents' home, that's a second transition, and then the transition into your professional lives if you go to college or vocational life if you don't, that's a third time. Those are the three times that that people are taking an offering. Okay, so let's talk about uh, de-churched mainline Protestants and Catholics, and then I want to get to cultural Christianity. That's sort of the big one. So 
Uh, but we'll we'll go to mainline. And we've seen this slide for decades, right, in the mainline churches. I would argue that three, four things happened in the 1990s that really sped up this process. And so the first is the fall of the Soviet Union. This was a really big deal because wow. be- before the fall of the Soviet Union during the Cold War, to be American was to be Christian. I mean, this is when Eisenhower added in God we trust on our money under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. And I'm old enough, which means you're old enough to remember Mm -hmm. a time when people, if somebody said, I'm no longer a Christian, it wasn't crazy for the next question to be, well, are you a communist? Exactly, exactly. It was so closely Uh aligned. So then the Soviet Union falls and there's space and freedom in our culture for the first time to be a patriot, an American, but not Christian. That was a big deal. In the 90s, the internet came along and in 1994, the internet cafes are popping up for the first time. By 97, it's in most of our libraries and public schools. And so you can, for the first time, engage other worldviews in a way that isn't gonna cost you social capital in your with your friends and your family. So that's second. The rise of the religious right uh, created and an ongoing political uh, polarization created a picture of Christianity on the far right side that caused people to say, well, that's what this is. And this is, again, this is mainline and Catholic. This is when the mainline and the Roman Catholic de-churching are, are they're, the, they're the biggest group in the 90s. And so they're saying, if that's what Christianity is, I, I think I'm out. And then finally, in, in the decade, basically with 9-11. And so in just 10 years, the arch enemies of our nation have gone from being godless atheists to religious fundamentalists. Mm. And so that had its own uh, wave of, uh, it had its own impact into de-churching. So in the 90s is largely when we're seeing the mainline church and the Roman Catholic church see their de-churching in earnest. This group um, is going to be more on the political left. They, they, they about 70% of them would say Jesus is the son of God, but only 15% of them believe that the Bible is the word of God. So there's probably mm-hmm. some work we want to do there. And what do you really mean when you say Jesus is the son of God? Um, so they, they look almost identical. They're de-churching at about the same time. They, they have average incomes. American institutions are working okay for this group. The real difference between these groups is that moving to a new community hit mainline de-churching harder than it did Roman Catholic. And unsurprisingly, uh, a scandal affected Roman Catholic de-churching more than it did mainline. Mm. So that would be the only real discernible difference. But we're talking about 20 million people here. When we, This is a huge a category, huge category. So that's half of the 40 million were Roman Catholics and mainline Protestants. Roughly. Yeah, you know, it, I'd probably, yeah, that would be right. 20 million would be mainline and Roman Catholic. 15 million would be de-churched. And in this initial phase of study, it involved all faiths. So 5 million would be other houses of worship. Oh, okay. So let's talk about cultural Christians. What, how do you define that term? What is a cultural Christian? So cultural Christian, we, the, the AI, the machine learning, it, it grouped this group of people who casually de-churched. They, they didn't have a real pain point. Um, they, but they aren't orthodox. I mean, they, 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 probably about 1% of this group would believe that Jesus is the son of God, but they still generally have, they're, they're fine with the Christian church. They would probably, they would call themselves Christians often. 
they might show up on Christmas and Easter. They might opt to be married in a church. I'm a good um, person, therefore I'm a Christian. Yeah, and so this is that th- you would you would find exactly that. So hmm. I'll call myself a Christian, but really it's about do you do more good than bad, or do you have a good heart? And so this is the this is Jesus's parable of the weeds and the wheat. I think. I mean, I think this Jesus said, "Don't be surprised. There will be some who look like they're in the kingdom, but they are not." And so in terms of what's going on, there absolutely is a purification, I think, going on in the American church that is a good thing. I hate that they weren't ever in, but this group, and this is about 8 million people, this is a very large group, they probably were never Christians. So when we engage them, I wouldn't just invite them to church. I'm I'm looking at them as a non-Christian. I think the surprise to me because when we talk about cultural Christianity, that's a term that gets talked about a lot yeah. for years and years and years. And I would have assumed that that was 40 million people. You're saying it's eight. And there are more people, almost as many people who hold orthodox views of Jesus who are de-churching as cultural Christians, seven and a half versus eight million. Almost as many people who hold very biblically authentic views of who Jesus is who are going, see a church. Uh, as cultural Christians. That's a big shock. It is. And I do want to clarify, cultural Christians, this is a group that de-churched from an evangelical church. So that oh, makes them— Oh, okay. Yeah. So the the four categories are—the the third phase of our study, we specifically dove into what is happening in evangelicalism. So you have the mainline and Protestant over here, 20 million, and then we dive in to people who de-church from evangelical church. That's our space. And so in terms of our own mission and our own church, we wanted to understand it well. So you argue this is not all bad news. <laughs> how, I mean, it sure sounds this? like it right now. I know, I know. I mean, my friend David Kinnaman, he's, he'll yeah. say, you know, bad news Barna. Uh, yet another study shows <laughs> the decline in church attendance. How is, where is the hope in this? And David, by the way, and Barna, extremely hopeful group. I love those guys and I love the work that they well, do. Well, I would credit Barna with setting us down this path because they did a mm. 2017 study on the Orlando metropolitan area um, and Orlando used to feel like a, a, a you know, church mecca with all these booming churches and RTS is here and Ligonier's here and Campus Crusade is here and Wycliffe Pioneers, all these things. And we saw a Barna study that said Orlando had the same percentage of, of evangelicals as New York City and Seattle at 6%. And the, wow. the, the difference, this, and so it was like this eye-opening moment for us. And the difference is that our people who don't go to church largely used to, so it feels very different culturally. They still carry with them biblical values. So that's an excursus, but I'm very thankful for them because they set us down this path in many ways. Yeah. All right. So where's the hope? Like- well, the, we, we start with the truth is our friend. A good look in the mirror is a good thing, even if we don't always like what we see. The hope is over half of the 40 million, 51% are willing to come back. They're willing to come back. And if you, you know, again, if you zone in on specifically de-church mainstream evangelicals, 100% are willing to come back. And so it's not just about butts and seats. So we're not just excited because we can fill our, you know, rows and offerings. Like we're talking about a, ge- a moment to impact the generations because the children, again, of the de-church will be unchurched. So it is a vital part of our mission to welcome them back into the church. So there's, we're seeing with a lot of these people, it's not that hard. They, those who are still Christian, they and have casually de-churched, 
they feel it. They, they want to come back. They need somebody to walk them, walk with them. Um, of course, even the evangelicals, uh, you know, I've, I, we wrote about this and Justin Holcomb was very helpful because of his experience in abuse. There, there's some, some thoughts we have on walking someone like that back to church. It's a very different process, but there's hope that, that people, aren't leaving catastrophically, largely speaking. It's happening, and I don't want to minimize their pain, but um, there is a lot of hope here. I think that it's caught, you know, these types of analyzations have helped us to hone in on what we do, uh, understand what our mission is. Um, yeah, I also think, and this is gonna, this is gonna feel weird, but I think there's hope in realizing that the norm for God's people and you can go back to Abraham, Israel, Jeremiah, the early church, the reformers, the global East and South today. The norm is that we live in exile. Mm-hmm. That's the norm. And, and it's not all bad. It is not all bad. That, that has been the norm for God's people. And he has blessed them and he has been fruitful and he has drawn them close to him. And we as Americans fear not sitting at the seat of power. But historically, Christians have influenced their societies through the margins, not the seat of power. And we can all agree that Christians in power has not always been a good thing. It's not always gone well. And so I would yeah. say there's hope in that, that you know, I, of course I want our culture to be such that the faith can flourish, my children and grandchildren can flourish. I'm not wishing to be persecuted tomorrow, but mm. um, there's hope because this is not abnormal. What's been abnormal is what we've experienced the past hundred years. So we, we see a lot of hope. There is a purification going on um, that I think has been good for a lot of churches, ours included. Mm. Um, you know, my heart is for unchurched people. That's sort of what I've spent the last yeah. 28 years of my life doing. But you pick up churched people along the way, formerly churched people, de-churched people, yeah. transfer growth, et cetera, et cetera. What impact is this having on unchurched people? Like people who would not hold any kind of Christian belief, or maybe, you know, they were cultural Christians who were just mistaken in their understanding. But if you really want to reach people who haven't heard the good news about Jesus, where what what do you do with data like this? So our, our, our hope and what we've been starting to practice here, just beginning to, is, is first understanding who we're talking to, not just going and sharing a gospel tract or something. And if they don't listen, then that's on them. And I'm not disparaging gospel tracks. I came to faith through a gospel track, but um, but really listening and understanding who it is that we're talking to, because we're going to engage Christians who don't go to church very different than the non Christians, and very right. different than people who have pain points and have experienced pain. Um, so really listening, understanding. I, I also think in the 20th century there was a we placed a high value on what's true. Now, obviously, I'm not anti-truth. I believe the gospel is true, the Bible is true. But it, it came at the expense. You can see this in our apologetics, in our sermons, in our gospel tracts. It came at the expense sometimes of what is good and beautiful. So it shouldn't mm. surprise us that now the truth of Jesus isn't being questioned in the culture. The good, the ethics, the beauty of Jesus is questioned. And so I think we need to think through not just is what we're saying true, but why? And this is what Tim Keller did so well. But, you know, Jesus is true and he's good and he's beautiful. And so tap into like, well, this is 100% Keller, but, you know, would you possibly, let me show you why you might want to desire it. Now let me show you why it's good for you. And now let me show you that all of that is actually true. (laughs) So he worked (laughs) in the the opposite direction. Um, 
So I think listening, having empathy, growing in, in our own understanding of the gospel and walk with Jesus. And then, of course, I have to have the caveat, the Holy Spirit needs to move. You know, we're, not, we're not saying, that, hey, read this book and you'll be able to win all these dangerous <laughs> people. I mean, it's a miracle of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So we pray. What do you do with church hurt ex-evangelicals? What is a, a path back for them? Uh, I think it's it's affirming that you should have left that church a lot of times. You should. I, I affirm, like that church, you are right, that was not manifesting uh, the character of God the way that we are supposed to. Now, all of us fall short, but pr- that was particularly bad. So I want to affirm that. And, and I, I, want to, I would even say, you don't have to go to church about, right away. I do think church is ultimately good for you, but let's let's meet let's you know if we already know each other we already know each other but but let me help you find uh, a space a type of church that where you will feel comfortable that is very different and not only let me show you let me go with you and you should be able to sit down with the leaders and ask questions about accountability and and why you know, what they would have done in the experience that you, that you went through. And so just holding people's hands along this whole journey and, and showing them that what they experience in most cases is not what God wants. Um, you outlined five exhortations for church leaders. I, I want to drill down on exhortation two, which is extreme responses hurt people. What do you mean by that, Jim? So after writing the book, we started to, we started to use the language of medium walls. So, and this, this goes, this overlaps with the extreme responses. So in the extreme responses, I was specifically talking about one extreme, just, just happy to have people in the building, not calling them to anything. They believe whatever they do, whatever. Hey, we're just happy they're here. And the other extreme would be, would be, so that would be no walls, basically. Anybody Mm. can come in, anybody can go out. There's anonymity, there's no accountability, there's not a lot of discipleship. On the other side are high walls. That's an extreme response too, where if we go back to the parables of the weed and the wheat, we're we're told, you know, God's got this. And and we're told not to just look at everyone and, you know, are are you a weed? Are you a weed? And and so the example I use in in the book is my two younger kids. They have this feeling that every white van is driven by a criminal, you know, kidnapper at best, murderer at worst. Uh-huh. And we were driving down, and there was this van, and it was this great service that is offered to carry uh, people with special needs from one point in the city to the other. And my daughter said, see, I told you, it literally says on the side of the van, we will take you. <laughs> and, and so there's just like, there's no, no, well no, no convincing them, even if they know they're wrong. Um, and and I, you see this in some of these high wall cultish kind of churches where it, we exist to shield our people and our kids from the sin of the outside world. We're fundamentally operate on a hermeneutic of suspicion and distrust. And that doesn't equip our people to go out into the world. So these medium walls are what we're wanting to advocate. So you're learning as you are doing all of this research. What are you changing or what have you changed at your church? So the way I preach is different. Um, I, I preach to de-churching more. I, I preach to the value of corporate worship more, the value of being in the body more. Um 
I, you know, we, we've started not just our church, but a number of churches in Orlando because the number one reason is moving. And Orlando is the third fastest growing city in the United States. We started to engage Christian realtors and school administrators. So like when you see Christians hitting the ground, let's, let's help plug them into a church. So who are the first responders of sorts for those moving mm. in, into our city? We're increasing our investment of the youth in, in, in a variety of ways. We're trying to make the blessing of mental health known, not just from a pop psychology sermon, but trying to affirm that this is a resource here that is, is a part of this, the spiritual formation of the whole person. Um, we do a few more one-off seminars. Um, we'll bring people in to do a special seminar on a, on a certain thing. And I, I, I have, thanks to some influence from an organization called Made to Flourish, I have begun to ask people, uh, what is the best and hardest part about being a Christian in your workplace? Mm-hmm. And I begin to try to listen more to them and incorporate that into not only sermons, but discipleship structures and then we are we are developing a church planting pipeline. Um, we, we're in the orbit, obviously, here of RTS Orlando. And so we have students who are interns. Thanks to Made to Flourish, we have a residency program that takes that mm. to the next stage. That's three more years after seminary, kind of like a medical residency. And, and our hope is that potentially every second or third resident would be a church planter. And so they would get this experience. And, and our hope is that, you know, I don't, we do not want to be a mega church. I'm not against mega, I mean, I, mm. I, but, but our hope is that they would take a hundred people at a time every couple years or whatever and take elders, deacons and successfully church plant in the city. So I'm, I'm all in favor of de-churched people coming back to church and reconnecting in person with uh, with other believers, but is there anything incompatible or do the streams cross if you're trying to reach unchurched people and de-churched people at the same time? Because I feel like I know how to speak to unchurched people, uh, and that is my heart. That's my life's work. What, what like is it is it a is it a big flip? Or if you reach the unchurched, you'll also reach the de-churched. Yeah, I don't feel like the streams are crossing. I think there is an aspect of knowing your context. So again, mm-hmm. this was an Orlando-based project. We are the right. sixth, according to Barna, the sixth most de-churched city in the world. So, so that that's our context. Someone in Seattle or Washington, or, you know, Seattle, yeah, Washington, yeah. or, or that New York whole city, left coast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, I mean, there's going to they have a different context, but uh, probably you know many of these unchurched pers- people they're they're engaging with at some point in their lineage, their people went to church. So, you know, in, in the 20, potentially, but I think some of the basic skills, you know, that we're to apply are the same. We want to know who we're looking at. We don't want to make assumptions. We want to hear their stories. We want to hear their hopes and their storyline. And in the words of Tim Keller, we want to show them how that finds its best ending in Jesus and why that is. So I, I it's not, there are different paths, but I think we're applying some of the very same skill sets and not assuming someone is something they're not would be at the high, at the top of the list. Well, it would seem to me that it would be lower hanging fruit, easier to reach de-church people who are like, hey, 100%, I'm willing to come back. Like someone invite me or show me a different context or tell me that. And then you could engage them in the mission. You know what I mean? It's like, great, let's go 
serve. Let's get our friends. Let's, uh, who do you know that you could bring with you next Sunday? Like, I think, I think that's got great potential. Well, and they already have a lot of the building blocks. Exactly. You know, like, I mean, yeah. I, I'm in, in my time in Europe, we, we were starting at zero. I mean, they had never heard of some of the basic things that we're talking about. A lot of these people, they already have the building blocks. So we, as a church, are at a unique era where we can take advantage of that for the sake of the mission. This yeah. de-churching has to stop at some point. Eventually, even in the worst case scenario, like people are, there's not going to be anybody left to de-church. There's no one left to leave. Yeah, so there exactly. Is, there is like, there is a moment of opportunity here that is going to change. To re-engage. Yeah. Right. Actually, and that, that's going to be my last question. I'm, you brought up Europe a couple times. Do you see, fast forward 15 years, because you've read uh, the Pew Research and Gallup studies that are extrapolating how many people are going to be none, like no religion by 2040, 2050. Do you think America is going to feel like Europe? Or like Canada or different? There's there's one big difference between Europe Uh and America. Their church and state were integrally linked. Yep. Ours are not. So, So that has caused sociologists and social scientists to cause to call America stubbornly religious. (laughs) We we defy a lot of the trends in that way. What I do think we, I think there's a link in the trust of the institution of the church and the the way we trust and engage with all the other institutions. So I think there are, some of the plot lines are very similar um, in terms of what does a culture look like without, largely without the institution of the church? My context was Italy, actually, where mm. less than 2% of Italians, Catholic, Protestant, anything, go to any kind any kind of church more than twice per year. And that includes like weddings. And I mean, so, <laughs> and, and you can see how this affects their social fabric, their institution. I don't think they're a perfect window down the tunnel of time, but I think there's some things that we can learn. I would also say the the if we take the average giving of American Christians at about 2.5%, and we apply that to the 40 million, the total GDP of the people who have left is about $1.4 trillion. Mm. And then their giving, their benevolent giving would be somewhere around $24 billion. And so that's what's, and, and, and Christians, you know, we don't collect money to make ourselves rich. Maybe right. some other theologies do, but this is, this is going, I mean, orphanages and hospitals and universities are created, have been created by Christians largely. Yeah. And the, the, the way that, you know, the fabric, the, the social net that, that churches create, when you have one point four trillion dollars, now that's total GDP not giving, walking out of the church, that's going to affect the resources that people in this country are going to have. No, and that's a good point. You know, if it's so you said it's twenty-four billion uh of potential giving that has yes. exited the church. And if you look at that, like uh there are other organizations that are now getting quite nervous about the decline of the church, these are secular organizations, because the amount of charity, the amount right. of other focus, the amount of community good that, believe it or not, actually comes out of the church is declining as church declines. And I think that's a really good point. A hundred percent. And I would be remiss if I didn't also talk about missions and church planting. Yes. that's twi- I mean, so that's $24 billion of giving there. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, I'm so grateful you did this work and thank you to your co-author as well, Michael Graham and Ryan Burge and Colin Hansen, who we've had on the show, wrote the foreword. 
Uh, it's great. It's called The Great Dechurching. Highly recommend this book. And where can people track with you, Jim, online and also find Michael and Ryan? So we're all on Twitter. That's where we camp out most. Um, AKA uh, X. Yeah. Yeah, X. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. We're all on there. I still call it Twitter too. I know the, yeah. the, the, the little thumbnail changed and my wife was like, what's on your phone? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm on X now. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we, Twitter is really where we engage the most. Right. Um, okay. You can find it. I'm Jim Davis, seven, nine. Mike is MSG rights and uh, Ryan Burge. I can't remember what he is, but he's easy to find. Yeah, but he's on Substack too. And yeah, that's great right. Substack that's right. there as well. So listen, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. I've learned a ton and really grateful for your contribution. Thanks, man. Well, I feel the same way about you. Yeah, did I mention you may want transcripts on this one? So we got them for you. Okay, you can go free of charge to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 600 and you can get the show notes, you can get transcripts and a whole lot more. Really grateful for this conversation. Next up, we're going to have another great one. Dave Ramsey and I, well, we talk about some personal things, the ups and downs that he's faced in leadership, leading a Gen Z and millennial team, and his strategy for succession and rules for working with your adult kids. Here's an excerpt. Every time I let go of something else, we changed the show in 2020 from uh, the Dave Ramsey show to the Ramsey show. It was emotional on the air of the day that we was changed that? it, you know? What did you feel? Yeah, I mean, I, what did well, you feel? I, I felt as unimportant as I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't like that feeling. I want to be important. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm uh-huh. a human being. I don't like that. So, But the noble thing to do was to set the show up that has, you know, about 30 million people tuning in a week through its various mediums mm-hmm. for generational success, that it doesn't die when I do. It's a side of Dave Ramsey you may not always see. And man, I loved this conversation. I think Dave did too. That's next time. Hey, remember to check out the Art of Generosity course today if you're listening when this is live because we're going to do a live run-through of that course. So go to theartofgenerositycourse.com where you'll learn my new program, The Art of Building a Generous Congregation. Of course, if you're listening after this episode is released, hey, you can still check it out, theartofgenerositycourse.com. And 10 by 10, fantastic initiative, really seeking to re-engage Gen Z in the church. You can go to 1010.org, that's 1010.org, to learn more about the mission and how you can be part of the solution. Also coming up, we've got Judah and Chelsea Smith, Mike Todd, John Christ, a whole series on AI that I'm very pumped about. Philip Yancey is making a return, Jenny Katrin, and a whole lot more. And if you're like me, you're always looking for ways to stay informed and engaged with the world around you. That's why I launched my On The Rise newsletter. And over 100,000 leaders get it every single Friday. If you would like to check it out, easy to subscribe. If it's not for you, easy to unsubscribe. Just go to ontherisenewsletter.com and I will send you the best curated content I could find every single week. Lots of stuff on the church, but also some really curious things like fun videos, uh, interesting podcasts I'm listening to, articles that will make you think, and a whole lot more. All you have to do is go to ontherisenewsletter.com and you can start getting better every week when I deliver that to your inbox on Fridays. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I really do hope that this episode helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing. And thank you so much. For 600 episodes, we got a lot more to come down the pipe.